And now, more sports and torts with David Spada and Elliot Heron. On the phone, we have Larry Zonka, former Miami Dolphin, New York Giant, five-time Pro Bowler, two-time Super Bowl champ. He was the MVP of Super Bowl VIII. The Miami Dolphins retired his number 39, and he's a member of Pro Football's Hall of, Hall of Fame. How are you doing, Mr. Zonka? Good. So what did you think of that game last night down there? Uh, well, With Tim Tebow. What's that? What do you think of Tim Tebow yesterday, what he did for uh, the Denver Broncos? Yeah, well, I uh, I wished he was doing it for the Miami Dolphins. I watched Tebow play uh, when he was a sophomore at Nice High School in uh, Jacksonville. Went down to the game, went down to the bench and talked to him a little bit on the field and then watched as he went to the University of Florida and uh, really thought that perhaps the Miami Dolphins would uh, would draft him. I remember all that controversy about him not being a, a perfected uh, pro thrower, but, you know, I wasn't a fast enough fullback either. So <laughs> those kind of things uh, sometimes are, are almost used as a stimulus for a guy. But what Tebow is, and he's proved over and over, is that he's a winner. And uh, you put him in the right environment, put him with other people that want to win, and he'll, that, that lad will find a way to do it. So I was impressed with him and how much he could, how much better he is at throwing the ball, uh, as was as was the Pittsburgh Steelers. But uh, you know, he still got a long road to road to uh, travel to go to the Super Bowl. Do you think it's difficult for pro uh, football personnel people to be able to measure the? intangibles, you know, you go to the combine and they they get your vertical and they get your 40 speed and all this other stuff. But sometimes there's just guys who are football players and not necessarily the best athlete, the fastest, the strongest. Absolutely. If you look at our team of the undefeated season, if you went player by player and you sacked us up against the teams that uh, were in the playoffs in those years, the Kansas City Chiefs that went to Super Bowl and were successful, the Pittsburgh Steelers that would later go to Super Bowls the next couple years and be very successful, Washington Redskins and a number of Minnesota Vikings and different ones that were all there, we probably wouldn't have won that matchup individual to individual. But the intangible that you've alluded to is that what they call the, the will to win. Um, that makes people like Howard Twilley, our wideout receiver there from Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, a kind of guy that gets open, even in the old bump and run. He would manage to get open somehow, some way. That you can't measure. That's what I think you're alluding to, and that's what we had a team full of in, back in 72, and I think that's what Tebow has. How important was coaching with Don Shula with that undefeated season? Absolutely. A primary ingredient. Uh, Make no bones about it. I don't care what anyone else on this undefeated team says or, for that matter, of media or anyone else. I know what the key factor was in that season. I was there, and it absolutely was Don Shula. He, he was, uh, for lack of a better description, I say that he was possessed. After he came to us uh, from losing that Super Bowl with uh, Baltimore, hands of Namath, he came down to the Miami Dolphins and, and uh, pushed and prodded, screamed and hollered and insisted Tremendous attention to detail. I don't think he could coach that way in the NFL today. I don't think the players would respond to him. But back then they did. We did. And got into that first Super Bowl, lost again at the uh, hands of Dallas in Super Bowl six. 
at that moment, I think, was his finest coaching moment right after that loss because that's what led to the undefeated season. He uh, pulled us together through defeat even stronger than we were uh, prior to that happening. Now, I, I happened to be a young sports writer down in Miami in uh, 1970 when Shula came. He couldn't have known that there was a, a, a Super Bowl championship team there at the court, could he? No, I don't think he did. I thought he was uh, he was pleasantly surprised by how much talent had been amassed there. And there was a fellow there named Joe Thomas, who was a personnel director that had put the Minnesota team together prior, and then after that put uh, several other teams together, including the 49ers, uh, before he uh, he passed away and retired from the league and passed away. So there was quite a litany uh, for his for his success in the NFL, and I think the Dolphins' nucleus of players was certainly there. And once Shula realized that, I think he was somewhat surprised by how he put together a power running game and ball control game. He had never had that at Baltimore, I don't believe. He had spurts of it, but never had it consistently, consistently like he suffered at the hands of Green Bay when he was a head coach at Baltimore. Uh, you know, when Green Bay had perfected that mm-hmm. with Taylor and Horning and the great offensive line they had there. When he discovered he had that here, uh, then we were, uh, we were set to go and he knew how to, how to utilize it because he had suffered at the hands of it at Green Bay when he was with Baltimore. He had to be quite a coach. I mean, basically to throw the ball to poor Paul Warfield only a couple of times a game. And today's NFL, a player with Paul Warfield's skills would be complaining that I want the ball more. Well, there's a difference in Paul Warfield and today's players. Two major differences there, and I'll just touch on that while you're talking. It's an interesting thing to, to look at. Paul Warfield got open in the old bump and run, and when they when the safeties and or strong safety and weak safety could come across and literally take your head off, um, he was tough enough to get open even when getting knocked and bumped and, and jammed all the way down the field. Think about taking a time machine and bringing Paul, Paul Warfield forward into today's game where you can only bump him in the first five yards and then give him equal opportunity to the ball downfield. How, how well do you think he would do today? Have, have you ever seen a, a receiver as smooth as Warfield was? He just looked like he floated across. Well, he was a, uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think he qualified for the Olympics or came close to it in the, in the low hurdles and also ran the high hurdles. So there's a guy that uh, he had to have a fluid motion. Anyone that uh, is, is Olympic considerable or an Olympic consideration in the hurdles definitely has a uh, very strong self-discipline and a smooth gait. You know, he perfected that in, in that capacity and then moved it over to football. He was actually, you know, if you remember, he played for Woody Hayes and he was pretty much a halfback at Ohio State. But Paul Brown saw the possibilities with Warfield and brought him to the Cleveland Browns. When you went to Syracuse, I mean, you followed the long line of great running backs, Ernie Davis, Jim Nance, Floyd Little, Jim Brown. What made you choose Syracuse? Well, the head coach, uh, much like uh, I attribute my success in the pros to Don Shula, having the right head coach, I attribute my success at uh, college level by having a fellow that believed in me enough to let me run the ball. And it was questionable at the start. You know, a lot of people, including Woody Hayes, had me uh, pretty much set to be a middle linebacker, and I wanted to run the ball. And uh, Ben Schwartzwalder was a guy that had a history of having an offset uh, 
strong line and not throwing the ball much in the uh, history of great, uh, large, fast running backs. So I had my shot. If I was going to have my shot at running the ball, it would certainly be with Ben Schwartzwalder, and that's why I went to Syracuse. Okay. So that's how an Ohio guy got out of state? Yeah, Woody Hayes told us all, uh, got us in a room and said we owed it to our state to go to Ohio State. And I was about 16 years old and been shoveling, shoveling cow manure for about 12 of those 16 years and didn't figure I owed anybody anything, so I went to Syracuse. <laughs> With the Dolphins team that went undefeated, a lot of people say it was the best NFL team of all time. Taking them out of the equation, who would you think is the best team of all time in the NFL? Well, when you say best team of all time, you've got to – First, you've got to set the parameters. You guys are ex-sports writers, ex-attorneys. You know, uh, you can't make a statement like that. You have to, you have to look on what rules. You know, to come forward from past days and play on today's rules. Yeah, there's only, there's some guys that would really do well. We just alluded to the fact that Paul Warfield would be a, my gosh, he'd be an all-world wide receiver in uh, today's game. But for those guys in today's game to go back under those rules and play, you know, if you want to take a team and go, you best go find an old team in the in the past decades and bring them forward because the rules enhance most of the offensive play uh, a great deal and and detract from most of the defensive play. So you got to look for a team and it was a great championship team that also had a great strong defense and what rules did they play under? So there's a lot of. Uh, prerequisites before you can make an assumption like that. In, in my era, I think the team that was the most powerful that came the closest to doing what we did, uh, even though it seems like uh, New England was the closest, in reality, I think it was the Chicago Bears in 1985 under, under Ditka. They seemed so much powerful than every other team that they played in the NFL that year that, uh, I, you know, their, their greatness ran deep. They had great backups, as we did in 72. We had people that could step in and, and take over, and that's what uh, the Bears had that year. Now, you referred to the Green Bay Packers running tandem of Paul Horning and Jim Taylor. Was there ever, ever a better trio than you, Jim Kick, and Mercury Morris to occupy a backfield? Well, again, you you got to look at the different decades. It, it, at the time we were, the Kick and I and, and Morris were doing that, they had some uh, great running backs, Fuqua, uh, Franco, uh, at um, at uh, the Steelers, Rocky Blyer. I was trying to think of Rocky's name. It slipped my mind right. for a second. Uh, that that was a great trilogy of backs there as well. And, you know, it, the backfield's only as great as your offensive line can substantiate. So... When you talk about great uh, groups of running backs for different teams, uh, that's all predicated upon the ability of the offensive linemen. Now, maybe less important today than it was, uh, you know, in decades gone by because of the rules changes. But, uh, you know, it still still plays a major part. So you have to look at the quality of that offensive line, whether they had a great blocking tight end, whether or not the wide receivers could crack back, uh, things like that that made, made a tremendous difference in the running game. How did you get your nickname a Zonk? Well, my name is spelled C-S-O-N-K-A. It's pronounced Chonka. It's Hungarian. And a lot of people, uh, you know, are getting confused by the C and the S, uh, pronounced it wrong. So I just, uh, it's actually pronounced Sonka. Like the C is silent, just S-O-N-K-A, Sonka. But, 
uh, people had trouble remembering that, so I just said Zonk or Zonka. I put a Z in it to make it easier to remember, and uh, that caught on. Uh, you know, we had a, that's funny how I never really thought about it until we started winning games, but they came on with the fact that uh, what better name running backs than Mercury Morris, the mercurial one, and uh, Jim Kick, who uh, <laughs> I never really thought about his name relating to football until the media started with it, and then Zonk. Uh, as a description, that, that was kind of unique. I don't know. I, I don't really know where that came from, but it uh, it followed us around. Yeah. Now, how rewarding was it having played on some Dolphin teams that were fairly bad to, to achieve the greatness that you guys did? Well, you hit right on the you know you hit the nail on the head. We paid our dues. Uh, those first couple of years, I was with the Dolphins. The first few years of their existence. Uh, you know, aqua and orange living in Miami and being uh, having a logo. Our mascot being Flipper was kind of a <laughs> not exactly the most uh, macho thing in the world. You know, when you're out of college, you like to think you're drafted by the Cowboys or the you know the, the Bears or the Lions or something macho like that. I got drafted by by the Dolphins and, and my logo was Flipper. You know, orange and aqua for crying out loud. It was. <laughs> Kind of a setback. We were the, absolutely the doormat of the league for the first two years of my career, and uh, things were tough. Uh, a lot of concussions, a lot of uh, a lot of injuries. Then, and Monty Clark came, uh, Coach Don Shula came, and uh, the rest of the assistant coaches, and they started to pick up some trades and put some people together. We got Langer and Kuchenberg and Larry Little. Yeah, Wayne Moore and Norm Evans, and all of a sudden my headaches went away, and we started to be a force to be reckoned with. That was a great transition, transitional period, and uh, you know I think you uh, your point being that you can really relate to winning if you if you've been living in the losing for a while, and I think that uh, that helps to make a stronger champion. You were part of two leagues that tried to challenge the NFL, the WFL and the USFL. What was the problem with both those leagues and why they didn't succeed? I think the WFL was loosely organized and didn't have a, uh, a center of gravity, and I think the USFL was similar. I think it got uh, got kind of wild there with a couple of owners that wanted to uh, do to the NFL what should have been done, but they just did it a little too soon. And, uh, as a matter of fact, they were successful. It was just that there was some confusion at the last moment because the USFL uh, getting three or four franchises as a settlement of funds. But uh, they actually won it and declared the NFL a monopoly. I believe it's still operating as a full monopoly today, as a recognized monopoly today. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's some attorneys there that I'm talking to. Is, is that correct or not? You're absolutely correct, but no one else wants to try to take them on. Well, if you're found guilty of being a monopoly, it seems to me that I remember during my lifetime hearing about AT&T being found guilty of being a, a, a monopoly by the federal government. Once they recognized that, they wouldn't stand for it and made them uh, pull apart. Why doesn't that happen to the NFL? It doesn't make sense, but again, the monopolies are back again. AT&T <laughs> was broken up, and now they're back again. Example. A lot of things in our society doesn't don't make sense, does it? You know, it's funny. You think money? You think maybe money might be at the basis of that? Oh yeah, just a little. Yeah, you know, you're on thin ground, aren't you? A, few, a billion here, a billion so there. The great thing about being 65 years old and retired and having a Medicare card is that I can afford to tread on thin ground now. 
Exactly. And you got your uh, fishing show you've been doing for a while. What's the name of it? 16 years. We've been, we were starting our 16th year of North to Alaska, Napa's North to Alaska. We had a great sponsor in Napa Auto Parts, and they've provided me with an opportunity of fishing and hunting in Alaska and bringing that, that uh, fun and pleasure, traveling around Alaska and showing some inside views of Alaska to a lot of folks down here in the lower 48. Tons and tons of people over that course of those last 15 or 16 years have gone to Alaska and visited or moved to Alaska because of what they saw on the show and sent me emails to to back that fact up. And uh, it's been a real treat. It's been a lot of fun. I love the state. What got you to head to Alaska in the first place? Well, I was absolutely taken back with Alaska. I was an Ohio farm boy and thought that catching a bluegill or, or uh, hunting a pheasant in the field with a single shot, 16 gauge on the way home from school while I was delivering newspapers, was uh, just more fun than anything in the world. And when I heard about a place that had giant bears and, and moose and, and uh, elk and caribou, I just uh, was mesmerized by it. My mother brought home a field and stream, I believe, or an outdoor life magazine. and had a picture of a Kodiak bear on the cover, and I just sat down right right in the middle of wherever I was at and read this whole thing cover to cover and decided someday I'm going to go to Alaska. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I got interrupted by football. <laughs> but in the long run, it provided me with an opportunity, or at least a key, to open up uh, the necessary things I had to open up in order to fund a program where I could go up and bring bring Alaska to uh, many other young lads, many other folks in the lower 48. That's uh, that's pretty much what we've done for 16 years now. Have you ever had Sarah Palin on your show? No, I met Sarah several occasions back when she was running for governor of Alaska and got to know her, her husband pretty well over the years. And I actually know her father quite well, and her maiden name's Heath, and my mother's maiden name is uh, Heath. And uh, I talked to her dad and found out that... Uh, Way back there somewhere, <laughs> we might be related uh, uh, through that. That was kind of a joke. I don't, I don't know that we were or not. But I, uh, he's a bear guide. Her father is a uh, bear moose guide and has been up there and, of course, is actively involved in a high school level. He's an educator and very into the kids in the area, so I got to know him very well. I've only ever met Sarah once or twice. What do you make of all the uh, talk of concussions in the NFL nowadays? Oh, it's a very realistic. Uh, it's a very real problem. It's been a real problem for for decades. It's not something that no one didn't, you know, they act like it's something new. It's not at all. It's been going on for years and years. The, the players certainly recognize. The medical people recognize that what a what a uh, traumatic thing it was. How it's been handled by the NFL and by public in general has, has changed a great deal, but uh, very lucky to, to go through that and not suffer more consequence on an individual basis than I did. So, so you're a fisherman, a farmer, former football player. How do you have time for all this? You know, I don't know. Uh, it just uh, one thing kind of uh, telescoped into the next, and uh, every, it seems like every time I retire, I get busier than I was before I retired, so... I don't even want to think about retiring from uh, doing the show. I don't know what will come along next. But life's been a great trip. It's had its setbacks, certainly. Uh, we all do. But I've uh, I've enjoyed the most of it, uh, the greater part of it. And uh, being affiliated with the NFL is a very positive thing. Being affiliated with the state of Alaska is uh, another very positive thing. And met a lot of fine people and spent a lot of great time there.
is there one uh, tackle that stands out in your your memory? Anybody that charged you the most? I was ever hit in the NFL was by a guy named Roy Winston from Minnesota. He was back up, or you know, a a linebacker for the Minnesota Vikings, and uh, I was a a relief pass uh, passing pass receiver uh, on a particular play when we played Minnesota in 72 and uh, I went out and was standing there and uh, there was nowhere else to throw the ball we had people like Mercury Morris and Jim Kick and Paul Warfield and Howard Twilley Jim managed to throw the ball to I was much chance of me getting a, a relief valve pitch but on this particular play it happened and Roy Winston just about retired me, I think. Uh, I think of Roy every once in a while on cold days when I get up. I think of several people when I get out of bed on a cold morning up in Alaska and I walk across the floor and my left ankle starts up and I, you know, I think about Bill Berge and then another step I think about Joe Green, another one's Butkus and then, then I go over to bend over and pick up my pants and put them on. Uh, I think about uh, Roy Winston and then I think to myself, I wonder if there, any of them are thinking about me. <laughs> Something tells me that they are. You could dish it so. out. You could dish it out pretty well, you know. Well, all those fellows I alluded to, I'd love to take fishing sometime in Alaska. Uh, you know, they were they were great competitors, and uh, you know, there was moments when it's it's a good thing they don't let you carry guns out there because I'd have shot any one of them or all of them if I'd had yeah. a chance. But on the other hand, it, uh, under the fire, you know, the heat of playing, you get pretty emotional, get pretty wound up. But then later you realize uh, they're just doing their their job too. So it's uh, it was it was nice to be on the field with such great great personnel, even when we played against them. One one last question: Ted Williams was known as a great fisherman. Did you ever get a chance to fish with him? No, I met him, but I never really had a chance to to fish with Ted. I, I wish that would have happened. I, you know, uh, through the course of my career and all the athletic. Uh, uh, background, you know, going to different banquets, I ran up on several people uh, very early in my career. Uh, I met uh, Bronco Nagurski and uh, got to stand back and, and chat with him behind a, a little place where they were putting on an NFL show of, of, or, or a show of NFL greats that was traveling around down at Fort Lauderdale back in the in the uh, late 60s. And he and Red Grange, there were several people backstage that I had grown up just reading about and idolizing and dreaming about. Yeah, I walked backstage and knocked on the door, and they opened the stage door, and it was uh, Bronco Nagurski standing there. I shook hands with him. And I was a player for the Miami Dolphins at the time, and he recognized my name, which was a real thrill for me to be able to shake his hand and have him know who I was. And, uh, you know, he's he's a really nice guy. He had a humongous hand. I was a, you know, a grown athlete at the time, and uh, my hand was like, it was like a little boy shaking a hand, uh, a grown man's hand. You know, he had the biggest hand of any man I've ever met. But he had silver gray eyes and a great smile and uh, told me a couple of stories. And we traded a couple of fullback stories. And uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was kind of a unique time, you know, to go and visit with those fellas from 40 years before, uh, 20 to 40 years before I played. It was a real thrill. And uh, now to meet with fellas that are playing, you know, 20, 30, 40 years after I played, that kind of uh, time, you know, that's when you ask me a question about, you know, what was the greatest team or who was the greatest fullback or who was the greatest quarterback. You can't, it just doesn't work that way. You know, if there was a time machine, we could find out. But think about today's players going back to the time of uh, 
Bronco and Grange and some of those, going back to a, a time when you could only substitute three players per half and you had to play the whole distance, 60 minutes, and go both ways, uh, where would you put some of these quarterbacks today on defense? You're absolutely right. I mean, except for like a Tim Tebow type, it's going to be tough unless you have a guy like Michael Vick. I mean, they only know one thing. There you go. And how durable would they be? How how long would wide receivers last when you could be hit at the line of scrimmage and hit all the way down the field or tackled when you're crossing the line of scrimmage and on downfield if your number was right? Uh, think about it. It's a lot different. Uh, it's a much different game. The field, the only thing that stayed the same is the size of the field. It's 100 yards long and 53.3 yards wide. And for the life of me, we can put people on the moon, but I don't understand why we didn't change the rules list and just make the field bigger to match the comparative size and, and, and uh, speed of the, of the uh, modern players. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Zonk. It was a pleasure talking to you. Sure. Talk to you later. Thank you, fellas. Bye. That was Hall of Famer Larry Zonk. On the phone, we have Larry Zonk. Elliot, 25 minutes of great content from Larry. Went by pretty quickly, didn't it? Exactly. I mean, he had some great ideas here. And I mean, you heard about Bronco Nagurski, a guy I heard about and didn't even have a chance to see play because he was retired probably for 50 years when I was born. Right. You know, it's a, it's like, okay, you go back to the early days of the NFL, and all of a sudden we're back with the Bronco Nagurski and George Hallis and all these legendary types. Is George Hallis still running the Bears? Uh I think he probably could be doing a better job than some of the people they may have making some of those decisions. I'm not sure. Uh, we can't hire a GM. We haven't even started an interview yet, and you call well, say have a new GM. I'm not a businessman, but if you lost a secretary in your office, I could understand why you might take your time and, you know, it's it's no big deal. But let's say you're a partner in a law firm and you lose a partner. Don't you already have in your mind who you would bring aboard for a top-level job like that? Most organizations would, but not the Bears here. I mean, you've got the one I want is Bill Polian. He had built up the Bills. They went to four Super Bowls. He built up Carolina. They went to a championship or the AFC championship game or NFC championship game. He built up the Colts. They went to two Super Bowls, winning one. Why don't you grab him? I know they said his son he's trying to pass the reins to, but you know what? Take the son if you get the father. And maybe the Holy Ghost while we're at it. I don't know. But it's very curious that other organizations, when they had the GM openings, they identified who they wanted. They went out. They got him. It's like the Bears were surprised that they fired their general manager. And what do we do now? And let's get a search for him or let's, you know, I don't know what. I, I would think you would want to get the best person you can in place as quickly as you can. And that doesn't seem to be the Bears' philosophy. They may think, we'll get the best person available whenever we get around to it, which to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I guess until we find out who they actually do have fill that role, we won't know whether it was a wonderful elongated process or just really, really slow. I mean, look at the Raiders. They hired their GM. He fires the coach who was fairly successful. They let him fire the coach. The Bears, whoever they hire, cannot fire Lovey. So who's going to want this job? You might as well just give it to Ruskell and let Ruskell give him a one-two-year contract right. and well, basically say if you don't de- make it. depends if the Bears have any long-range plans. If you want to bring in Tim Ruskell and say, okay, Tim, we're going to elevate you. You're going to have a chance to be a general manager. Here's a two-year deal. 
And at the end of next season, if the Bears don't do well, you say, bye, Tim, bye, Levy. Then you bring in your high-powered general manager who brings in your high-powered coach and hopefully gets the Bears back into a position of at least being in a Super Bowl, if not winning one. I mean, it's bad one. Someone wants to stay as Ozzie Newsom's assistant, Eric DaCosta, rather than apply for a job like with the Bears. You think the Bears are more desirable than the Ravens' job? You would think so, but, you know, there's probably a variety of factors. Maybe the person doesn't want to leave the Baltimore area or the comfort zone, or maybe he knows in a few seasons Ozzie Newsom is going to be retiring and he can just move up in the Ravens organization. It's tough to, to know precisely what's happening, but you would think being general manager of Chicago Bears at least sounds good or would look good on somebody's resume. I mean, everybody's saying hire this guy from the Patriots, but why? Everybody gets hired from the Patriots, Charlie Weiss, Josh McDaniels, they've all failed. Billick or Brian Belichick runs that organization. Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick? Is, is he the Michael Jordan of, of the Patriots that he makes everybody around him that much better? That He's a Bill Parcell protege, and similar to Parcell, you know what? They've both been successful. Yeah, but there aren't a whole lot of people like Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick that have achieved that level of accomplishment. And as you point out, you take uh, Charlie Weiss out of that system, away from that talent, give him different responsibilities, and it's a whole new ball game. The Bears, you think, are one of the top three teams besides Dallas, the Giants, the I, Bears? No, nah, I, I, I think you have a warped view of the world. I, I think We're more like the Cardinals. The Arizona Cardinals. No, I mean, the, the Bears are a storied franchise. There's no question about that. But if if you look at great organizations, you might want to toss in somebody if you're going to go old-time, long-time NFL teams. If there's Green Bay. There's Pittsburgh. To me, to me, those are more desirable franchises, may not be more desirable cities. In terms of cities, I think Chicago is as good as any you'll find in the NFL. As far as football franchises, I think that may be another uh, issue for another day. Speaking of time, we're out of time. We want to thank all our guests today, Larry Zonka, Leola Bell, and want to thank our sound man, Dave Olson. Another fine job. You're listening to Sports and Torts. Tune in again next week.